Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Can animals break the law? Why don't presidents get access to UFO information? Is the mafia really that violent? Could we have domesticated a T-Rex? Welcome to Curious State, where offbeat questions lead to unforgettable answers. Featuring renowned experts and artists who can help us get to the bottom of questions like, what's it like in the Pixar writer's room? When I worked on Finding Nemo, we we just couldn't figure out how is Nemo going to escape from a fish tank? What's the point of regret? You're going to actually have a, a happier life, amazingly, through this negative emotion of regret. Dive into what you didn't know you needed to know about everything from nature to consumer psychology to entertainment and beyond. I'm Doug Frazier, and this is Curious State. Catch brand new episodes every Tuesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From Sugar 23, I am Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Today, I'm talking to Cal Penn, the writer, actor, academic, who's well known for the stoner comedy, Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, and so many others, but also dramas like the adaptation of Jhumpa Lahiri's novel, The Namesake. He is also known for going a little rogue. And in 2009, he left his job as a cast regular on the TV show House to take a position in the Obama White House, serving as a junior staffer and liaison to the arts communities, young Americans, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. Now, I had a whole list of questions planned to talk all about his memoir, You Can't Be Serious, but he's just so dynamic and fun that the plans you have just don't apply. You just have to be in the moment with him. Inspired by Cal, I went a little rogue, and I hope it inspires you to go a little rogue in your own life. Thanks for listening. I feel like we all come to you, Carl Penn, with very different fandom experiences, and mine is definitely (laughs) the namesake. Oh, right on. Thank you. Yeah. Jhumpa Lahiri, probably one of my favorite writers. So, you know what? Why don't we start there? We're yeah, here, you know, obviously it. to talk about this incredible memoir of yours, You Can't Be Serious. And maybe by starting with the namesake, we're jumping in to the serious part because that felt like a pretty pivotal role to get. But Definitely. how did that come about? And what I'm really fascinated by is the executive you had met who had given you advice kind of early on in your career. And this was a moment when you were like, I'm calling that favor in. Yeah. So I'm so glad you started with the namesake because it's my favorite film that I've ever had the chance to work on. I mean, no no disrespect to the others because there, a lot of them are close seconds, but the reason that the namesake is a real, a real standout for me is that Mira Nair was a role model of mine when I was a kid. She directed the namesake and she's one of the catalysts for my own acting career. And so one of the goals was always to, to work with her and that was just kind of on the bucket list. When I was in, I think, eighth grade, she directed a film called Mississippi Masala with Denzel Washington and Sreetha Chaudhary. And that was one of the first times I had seen characters who looked like me on screen who weren't either played by white actors in brown face or brown voice uh, or who weren't cartoon characters. And so it was, it really sort of made me, and by the way, characters that were fully fleshed out. 
meaning they yeah. were flawed. They had their own problems. You know, they weren't just like my my friend John Cho used to say, you know, one of the things I'm least interested in playing is like the nice Asian cop. Like, what does that even mean? He's just a nice Asian guy that tells us nothing about him, nor does it indicate he's in any way interesting, right? He's just a nice guy. So seeing this, this film, Mississippi Masala, when I was a kid, the fact that the characters were fully fleshed out was very impactful. So that one of the goals since then, I sort of thought, well, if this if this woman Mira Nair can do this, then maybe I can too. And going backwards from the namesake, which was very special to me, one of the reasons I got the job on the namesake is because of the Harold and Kumar films. Mira Nair's son, Zaran Mamdani, who's now an incredible New York State Assembly member, politician, he he was what 12 14 maybe at the t- roughly appropriate age for watching a movie like that it must have been 14 and uh mira had said just so you know the reason you're here is actually my 14 year old son zoran is a huge fan of the harold and kumar movies and he showed me a few clips from those movies and that only reinforced to me that you're the wrong person for this drama that i'm doing <laughs> but if you wouldn't mind sticking around to meet him that would be great and so i said i'd be happy to meet him uh, and then I auditioned for her, and she was very impressed, which I'm, of course, very thankful for. But the, one of the big reasons I think I got the job in Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, you know, there was no shortage of brown and yellow actors to play these parts. But I was one of the only actors who could have played the role of Kumar who had already done a studio comedy before because of a, a project I did called Van Wilder with Tara Reed and Ryan Reynolds. And I had a great time making that film. Ryan was so gracious in encouraging me to improvise. And he's like, I can tell you're really funny. Why don't you bring the character off the page? The reason that was so important to me is the character I was playing in that early movie was a guy named Taj Mahal. Like that was literally his name. <laughs> and as you might gather from a name like that, <laughs> He was he was a stereotype for that that day and age, you know, an exchange student who was heavily accented and and really just just wanted to get laid. It was that kind of a party movie. And, and the question that you really asked about, kind of leaning on somebody for for mentorship, when the audition for this movie Van Wilder came around, I kind of thought I don't, you know, I didn't go to drama school to play an exchange student literally named Taj Mahal. And my agent at the time rightfully said, you know, for a guy who looks like you, it's going to be really hard to get credits on your resume if you're not taking whatever parts are available to you. And the only parts that are really available to you that I can get you auditions for tend to be these these one-dimensional roles. And so I would encourage you to at least audition. And if you get the part, you know, have a conversation with yourself about whether you want to do it. That was kind of a bummer because I don't think any actor wants to have to think about representation or the politics of a particular part, unless that's the reason you're playing the role, right? Mm. Just like a lot of my doctor friends, like, you know, you, you didn't you didn't go to women's medical school. You just went to medical school because you wanted to be a doctor. It's a, a similar thing where like, I, I just went to drama school. You know, I didn't go to Indian American drama school or some nonsense like that. So I, I started to resent a little bit the idea that yeah. I had to even have these conversations with myself. And I, I relied on this woman I had met a few years prior. Her name is Sonia Nakor. She's no longer in the entertainment business, but she was one of the vice presidents of casting at NBC. She happened to be the only South Asian woman who I think was working in network TV at the time and had a brief meeting with her. And she just said, look, you're just starting out in your career. Obviously, there's not very much that we can do in terms of working together. But if I can ever be helpful to you or you need any advice, give me a call. And she gave me her card. And I hadn't called her for the longest time because, you know, what was I going to do? Beg for an audition on Friends? Like, that was a decidedly purposely white show. They were never going to cast a guy like me. Same thing with Seinfeld. Both shows that take place in New York City. Both shows are very funny, obviously very well written. but Also in the most diverse city in America. Yeah. And so that was, you know, NBC at the time and the producers of those shows had made a, a choice that they were going to exclude performers of color from those shows. And that was a choice they made. There wasn't very much that you could do about it if you were an actor. So so for that reason, I just sort of laughed and was thankful, obviously, for her card. But I was like, yeah, what am I ever going to call you for advice, you know? And so then the Van Wilder audition came around and I thought, well, let me let me call her. Maybe she's got thoughts. And so I told her, you know, it's kind of a stereotypical script and a stereotypical part, but my agent says it'll help me get credits on my resume. Is that true? And she said, well, yes, that is true. But let me just ask you of the of the things in the script, you know, how many of them kind of made you cringe? And I said, oh, I don't know, uh, 30? She goes, okay. And 
outside of those 30, are there any jokes that are actually funny? I was like, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, in the genre of what this is, this is an 18-year-old who wants to get laid. So all of the humor of that genre is definitely like if this character were absent from the script, the plot wouldn't advance. And Mm. so in that sense, it was different than a lot of one-note stereotypes that just kind of pop in and out. So she said, okay, well, look, um, of those 30 things, you can pick 10, right? If you get this job, you can pick 10 of those things and sit down with the writers and the director and talk about those 10 things. And I said, wow, I didn't know that was a thing that I could do. She goes, well, I'm not finished yet. You can't just say, I don't like these 10 things. You should change them. Your job is to come up with 10 things that are funnier than what the writers came up with. Because you have to understand, they they most likely didn't craft those jokes with the purpose of alienating anybody. And so if you can be funnier than what they did, that's kind of your job. You can't do it for all 30, but you do have that kind of agency. And in fact, if you're a comedian and if you're a writer, that's something that they might welcome. And I was really blown away by that. I still hadn't decided whether or not I was going to take the part. And in the final callback audition, I remember walking into the to the audition waiting room. I knew it was between me and another guy. I just didn't know who the other guy was. And I walk in and it's a white dude in brown face sitting in the waiting room. And I, I just immediately thought to myself, you know what? You can play Braden from Iowa. Like, you're not getting this part, buddy. I'm not letting you. This goes on my resume. And so I, I, you know, worked hard at the audition. I ultimately got the part and I accepted for all of those reasons. And so when you asked about the namesake, the reason that that has an additional special place in my heart, aside from the fact that Mira is such a role model and now a good friend, is that I think had I rejected that advice early on and said, no, I don't want to do this Van Wilder movie because I don't think there's any merit to it or I, I don't think that that's something that I want to do. I don't think I would have gotten the job in Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. And if I hadn't gotten the Harold and Kumar job, I certainly wouldn't have had the audition for the namesake, which is the project I'm most proud of today or film that I'm most proud of today. And so it's the reason I describe it in a lot more detail than this and with a lot more like potty mouth humor in the book is that I just feel like, you know, this is my journey. Plenty of actors make different choices and they say, no, they have a very hard line, especially back in the day, right? I won't do this thing. And they've done wonderfully in their own careers. So there's no singular path, right? But I did think that it was kind of worth mentioning because I love how much the entertainment industry has progressed and advanced. And I just love what we do so much as artists and the things that are possible today just weren't possible 20 years ago. I think it's so important for us to read a book like yours and be reminded just how recent, you know, brown face, black face was in Hollywood. Just back to Sonia, that felt like Mm -hmm. such an important lesson that we can all take from you know yeah. your experience but before we delve into that more i just want you to tell the story of going rogue well i feel like you go rogue a lot which a is lot, like yeah. the best yeah. thing <laughs> but particularly going rogue to get the role taj mahal the one you're talking about yeah. that yes you know once you were inside of it you could create change was so awesome yeah. but i think so often we want to stick to the rules, yeah. particularly in terms of hierarchies, whether it's within Hollywood or a corporate structure or pretty much anywhere. And it feels to me like when you take a big risk and for Cal Penn, that's like going rogue, there's often a big payoff. I wonder as a mm-hmm. second question, if you've ever gone like seriously rogue with like a pretty disastrous outcome. For sure. Uh it's funny you ask that. There was an early draft of one of these chapters that was so long and so full of grievance and mistakes. So you were going wrong. That when I, oh yeah, all the stories of like the going wrong gone awry, that I was like, okay, you can maybe include two of these 97 stories. Otherwise, like you're losing the reader. Nobody wants to hear time and time again. On the stuff that went wrong, but the one or two that I that I tell, and the one I tell about the show called Sabrina the Teenage Witch, oh, yeah. which I think predated Van Wilder actually, but the reason I tell it is it was a similar setup to the suggestion I got from Sonia Nicor about Van Wilder, but with the exact opposite result. So if you remember Sabrina the Teenage Witch, it was like this silly kids <laughs> show, Melissa Joan Hart, really fun, like kids loved it. It was about a, somehow the cat was talking. I don't know why. I think because they were witches. My stepbrother, who's older than me, obsessed, <laughs> but obviously 
he loved her, you know. Yeah, sure. So, great show. And the cast was very kind and all of that. But so I got I got an audition. It was one of my first auditions. It was just three lines. And they said, you're auditioning for the part of a kid in Sabrina's study group at college. And I thought, oh, this is cool. All right. So like most nerdy actors, you you create a backstory for any character. It doesn't matter if they have one line or if it's a whole script worth. So I decided my character was from the Pacific Northwest and really liked like organic coffee, like small batch coffee and just wore flannels. And this whole thing that I created in my head really to ground, even if it's just three lines, the more you ground a, a human in a world, the better your performance will be. So I went into the audition and I felt like I did well. And as I was walking back to my car, the casting director was running after me and he said, uh, the producers really liked your read. They'd love for you to do it again. Can you come back in? And that's always a good sign, especially if they're not going to schedule another session. They're like, we just want to see it again. So I follow him in. And uh, right when we get to the door, he says to me, um, by the way, they want you to do it again this time with an accent. And I was like, oh, the bait and switch. Mm -hmm. So I said, when I walked into the room, I said the thing that I used to say regularly at the time for years, where I would go, oh, cool. Sure. What kind of accent would you like? I can do Brooklyn. I can do Irish. I can do Australian. I can do, you know, I just went down a list and they were never amused by this. But in this case, the director kind of rolled his eyes and, and said, uh, yeah, why don't we just stick to Indian? So uh, I'm like, okay. And I had that kind of decision point in my head where I thought I could leave right now. Nobody's forcing me to do this, right? I have, I have full control over this. And plenty of actors in a similar situation certainly would have just walked out. And then I thought, but I know I need credits on my resume. And I, I know this job probably pays like 600 bucks. And my rent is 550 for the month or 525. I was sharing a room with a, a, a good friend of mine. I was like, so I could pay a whole month's rent from one job, just these three lines. Let me at least just see if I get the part and then I can say no. And so I did what they wanted and they laughed harder than any rational human should laugh in a show about a talking cat. And I was like, oh, all right, well, that felt shitty. So I walked out and I, when I got home, I called my agent and I said, uh, hey, if they call you for the part, and she goes, they actually just called. I was about to call you. You got it. Congratulations. And I didn't feel happy. And going back to what I was saying earlier, like I very early on began to resent having to litigate these types of feelings where, you know, my other friends who were aspiring actors, when they booked a part, everyone was really happy. You'd go out for drinks. You were celebrating the fact that they got a job. And in my case, I wasn't even happy because I hated the bullshit that came along with it, right? To me, an accent alone does not make a stereotype. You know, yeah. plenty of people have accents. I, I'm also not a fan of even from communities of color. A lot of times you'll hear things like, uh, oh, Cal had to audition for the part of a cab driver. As if the job of a cab driver is somehow inherently shameful. That's not the case at all, right? And so I think that the challenge here is that a lot of times when ethnic roles are whittled down to only an accent, and generally accents are used to mask subpar writing, yeah, like that's all you need to create a character on screen. Right. It's like, yeah, no. Yeah, or, you know, a profession. Essentially, anything reductionist that's tied into race or ethnicity is the type of thing that creates a stereotype, mostly because those characters have no agency. They don't drive the plot of the film. They don't, they don't really do anything. It's also just super boring, right? If you look yeah. at the history of those characters, like, all right, you want to do that shit again? Go ahead. But it's not particularly interesting. I can make it more interesting for you if you want. So when the agent called and said that, I, I told her what happened at, at the audition. I said, "Is there? could you call them? Is there any way that they'd let me do this the way I first auditioned about this like dude from the Pacific Northwest who wears flannels? Also the reason why they called you back in the room. You yes, know, exactly. You struck a chord just with doing it your way. Right. Thank you for saying that. That's sometimes something that I even miss. And she she said, I, I know that an agent calling is generally less effective than an actor just having a conversation face to face. So my advice to you would be, if you know you're kind of going to take the part anyway, because it'll pay a month's rent and it's a credit, why don't you show up maybe a half hour early to work and pull the director aside and ask if you can play the part the way that you had first auditioned and just sort of make your case. And I thought, oh, I did, again, I didn't realize that was a thing I could do. And so I got there early. I found the director next to the coffee cart. I buttered him up at first, you know, as you do. I was like, hey, man, thank you so much. This show is so funny. I'm so thankful for this opportunity. By the way, 
I was wondering if I could maybe play the part without an accent. I thought it was a, a really funny script. And I thought, you know, I have this whole backstory for the character. I thought that might be a cool opportunity. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. We hired you to do that accent. So that's what you're going to do. And I said, oh. And then I, I, you know, I remember thinking like, well, they say that racism stems from ignorance. So maybe he just doesn't know what I'm feeling. So I said, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you know, I, I, I never grew up getting to see characters who looked like me on screen who weren't stereotypes. And so I thought instead of an accent, if I played the character differently, it would be a really cool opportunity to be funny in a way that people haven't really seen before and far less stereotypical. And he goes, yeah, no, I get it. You're doing the accent. It's funny. And so then I thought, maybe he really doesn't get it yet. Maybe it's still my job to educate him. So I said, you know, my little cousins really love this show. And since I never grew up seeing people who looked like me on screen who weren't stereotypes, I just thought it'd be so cool if my cousins could see characters like us who weren't stereotypes and that maybe I could just play him without an accent. And the director looks at me, he was so annoyed, and he goes... Let me tell you something. Your cousins should feel lucky that you're allowed to be on TV to begin with, and so should you. You're doing the accent, and he walked off. And I think that was the real one of the first moments, not the first certainly, but one of the first moments where I, I kind of thought, oh, so racism in in any industry, but but racism does not always come from ignorance. A lot of times it comes from fully understanding what the other person is saying, acknowledging that what you're doing is racist, and then wanting to do it anyway because you're a giant piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And that's what this guy was doing. So I tell the story in the book, not because I want somebody to IMDB who the director was, although you're free to do that. But the whole point is, you know, I'm so glad that systems change. And one of the subtexts of the book is how systems can and do change. And, and the complexity of I was the one who said yes, you know, I could have walked off. I chose not to do that. I chose to make a calculated decision about what I needed at that time, which was money in the bank and a credit on my resume. It doesn't mean that I'm giving that guy a free pass, nor am I absolving myself of my participation in something like this. But how cool that today, thanks in large part to streaming platforms, you've got so much diversity on Hulu and Netflix and Amazon and characters and stories that are bringing us into worlds that I certainly couldn't have fathomed when I was getting yelled at by this shitty... Sabrina director, that that would ever happen. And it's just the coolest thing. And I'm so thankful for it. Well, I'm wondering, does that connect as well to the letter you wrote to your 31 year old <laughs> self? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, just like the accumulation of so many experiences, would the letter change today if you were to write it like this morning? I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I hope. I mean, the, so the letter... <laughs> A particularly silly chapter in the book called A Letter to My 31-Year-Old Self, where I basically, I, I give my 31-year-old self the advice that I wish I had had from anybody when I was going into serving at the White House. And it's like, to be clear, it's things like one of my jobs was outreach to the Asian American community. And during my first week, almost the entire, there's a, a working group at the National Security Council that added me to this email chain of like 100 people, 100 very serious national security people. And they said, Cal, below are some talking points about the visiting delegation from the Philippines and questions you may get from constituents. And then some suggested talking points. Most documents are full of acronyms. So the first time you see something, it's spelled out with all the words and then every time you see it after that, it's just acronyms and parentheses. So in this particular email that 100 very serious people were on, it just said, Cal, here are some talking points. One of the main terror groups are known as the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And then in parentheses, it just said MILF. And then the rest of the email was like, MILF is considered highly dangerous. MILF recruits young men. Many young men grow to regret their affiliation with MILF over time. And I obviously was laughing my ass off at my desk and I hit reply all and I said, your main terror group are the MILFs? Amazing. And as soon as I hit send, I was like, no, 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 no. I wish I could take this back. And in the hallways, you know, people were laughing and, and telling me how funny they thought it was. So I, and then I would say, can one of you like have my back on the email and just be like, that's funny, but also blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, absolutely not. This is going to be, this is an official government document. It's going to be a public record in 15 years or whenever records are disclosed. You're on your own with that one, buddy. So this chapter, the letter to your 31 year old self has a lot of stuff like that, which is obviously yeah. very silly, but like would have been good to know. Don't make a MILF joke on email, even though everybody's thinking it. But the, so a lot of the other stuff, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope that if every couple of years we did the exercise of, 
advice to your younger self that it would change and evolve. And maybe sometimes the advice would even contradict itself, right? I feel like that's the sign of of thinking about stuff. Well, it's also the sign of growth, isn't it? To contradict ourselves. And I think, I mean, look, you just segued into politics and I want to be really clear about that story, your life of segueing yeah. into politics because it's so interesting. But I think we've somehow lost the ability to change and grow in public because we're, you know, we see how people are attacked if yeah. they change their mind, particularly in the political realm. But let's somehow get to the part where like President Obama calls you out and is like, wait, <laughs> You can't come work for me because you have to be on house. But hello, isn't there a writer's strike? And there's every reason why you can. So I think you see where I'm trying to go. But I think we need yeah, to hear yeah. like what was happening in your life where you saw this opportunity to work for, volunteer for, and then work for an incredible human who is trying to change America and the yeah. world. Yeah, and thanks for thanks for setting it up that way because now you're bringing back memories from the fall of 2007. That context is important because uh, many of us forget, you know, if you're an outsider to any political party, which of course Obama was as far as the Democrats were concerned early on, and Trump was to be fair early on in his days. So the Obama campaign in October of 2007 was very small, and I if I'm remembering correctly, the then junior senator from Illinois was something like 30 points down in the polls that summer against Hillary Clinton and John Edwards and like eight other candidates. And so Olivia Wilde, who was on the show House with me, said, uh, hey, I've got a plus one to a Barack Obama event next week here in LA. Would you like to come with me? And I said no, which surprised her because she had seen me reading one of Obama's books. And she's like, I thought you read his book. I was like, yeah, I, re I read a book about Dick Cheney too. doesn't mean I want to go meet Dick Cheney. And she was very persistent, and she goes, "It's a it's a campaign event." I'm like, "Yeah, I figured it was." And I, you know, I, I'm not trying to get it roped into somebody's political ambitions. And then I, th I think she said something like, "It's an open bar," and I was like, "Sweet, I'm in." So all I knew about this event was that it was a small fifty person, I guess plus one, so hundred person event designed for artists, and the Obama campaign was going to try to convince or invite these artists to come and help campaign in the early primary states. So Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. Uh, and Iowa was the first to go in the primary process of the four states. So because I knew this, I kind of thought, all right, so whoever shows up is going to probably be well-equipped to ask artist-related questions that we all have in mind, right? Like, what's your plan for the National Endowment for the Arts or for cultural diplomacy or stuff like that? So I thought, I'm going to ask a question that's a little bit different. I will ask a question about climate change, which is something I'm passionate about. So I went on the Obama campaign website before this event, and I uh, I looked at the section on climate change, and it said something about investing in ethanol. And you know, you you grow corn, you turn it into ethanol, and it's something that people in Iowa probably want to hear about because it's a corn producing state, and they get all these huge agricultural subsidies. But I remembered as I was reading that, that I had also read an article in a magazine called Foreign Affairs, which is a nerdy foreign policy magazine. And in Foreign Affairs, it had said, you know, if we invest too heavily in corn to turn into fuel, the global marketplace isn't going to differentiate between corn that's grown for industrial production and corn for human consumption. So the price of food is going to go up for people who rely on corn in developing countries, and that could be very damaging. So I was like, boom, there's my question. That's what I'm going to ask this junior senator from Illinois who thinks he's going to be president. So I go with Olivia to this event on my like fourth glass of wine, and Obama's making the rounds and comes over to say hello to us. And I said, Senator, I've got a question for you. You know, I read your climate change proposal. I know you're investing a lot in ethanol. Isn't that just going to drive the price of corn up for people in developing countries? And uh, Obama gave me the look that I guess whether you love him or hate him is irrelevant, that we all recognize to be this like cocky smirk. And he gives me the cocky smirk and he goes, uh, oh, yeah, you know, I read that article in Foreign Affairs too. And uh, if you had read my climate change proposal carefully, you would have seen that I'm investing in corn-based ethanol as a bridge to cellulosic ethanol so that you can produce fuel from your grass clippings and raking the leaves in your front yard at some point. And he gives me another smirk and he walks to the next person. And Olivia looks at me and she's just like, ah, you just got schooled by Barack Obama. And I was obviously like, oh shit, what just happened? 
And, you know, I was like, obviously two things. One, I need another glass of wine. But number two, at what point did the hubris of being a TV actor make me think like, I might know more about someone who's sitting on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So needless to say, Olivia and I both signed up to volunteer for Barack Obama that night. Because I kind of thought- You had to make up for being oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. cheeky. Well, I was I was very cheeky. And I was also like, he had, we read the same nerdy magazine, which makes more sense for him as a senator than it does for me as an actor. But I sort of liked that. And I liked that that there were no words being minced, nor was there any any fake. Pl- I mean, he was obviously very kind in, in the conversation, but there was no like, I'm worried that somebody might tweet something if I say the wrong thing, or I'm trying to give somebody a stock answer. There was none of that. It was just a very simple response. And so Olivia, myself, and two other actors, Megalyn Ichikanwake and Tatiana Ali, were the, the first four artists who went to go help Obama in Iowa. It was supposed to stay there for two days, and I loved it so much that I stayed you know, for the next year, basically, and went to 26 different states. Wow. And then talk about this transition from, like, you've been very much involved in the campaign. What was that decision like to go, you know what, I am going to take a bigger leap and take a, a full-time position there? Now hearing that story, it just seems like, of course, yes. But then the the domino effect of how you landed at, now I'll use an acronym, but we should say it properly, the OPE, the Office of Public Engagement. and Yeah. And just how, looking back, that, A, must have been an incredibly pivotal moment, but how it has reframed your life purpose. I appreciate you asking it that way. And I'll, I'll answer the question backwards. I, I think one big takeaway that I, I think all of us, really, frankly, I, I don't know the full demographics of your listeners in terms of their views, but I would say everyone understands that we're in a very polarizing climate right now. And one of the big takeaways from working in government, which I still have held on to, is this realization that if we do actually take the time to speak to each other and understand that you'll never get 100% of what you want, because that in itself is the basis of a democracy, that you can come up with solutions together if that truly is the goal, the shared goal. And we had the chance to do it at that particular time, I think, because we were willing to to go there. So public engagement is essentially the outreach office. And I was encouraged by my boss, Tina Chen, John Carson, Valerie Jarrett, who's one of the president's senior advisors. And the mandate was always the president wants us to meet with people who disagree with us and make sure that, you know, all viewpoints and all policy options are being considered before a decision's made. You know, there was fragility around that. And I, I thought that that was important and it's something that I've that I think has sort of stayed with me. But in terms of the how, you know, making the decision to actually do something like that, I certainly, I, you know, obviously the like wine drunk, nerdy environmental policy question should show you that I had no long-term goal of working in government. Otherwise, my approach probably would have been throw on a suit and go intern somewhere. But wait, weren't you also doing a foreign policy course at Stanford? I, <laughs> that's part of the nerdy side of me, right? Secretly, that's the, yes. I, but that's yes, just to and- fuel your intellect? Yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy I have a particular interest in cultural diplomacy. So how we use people to people diplomacy, basically any non military entity at our disposal to bring people closer together and avoid uh very dangerous military conflict. I I just think that, that that's that's a big passion of mine. I, I always like to say one of my dream retirement jobs is to be a US ambassador somewhere using my private sector background for you know, for, for that type of diplomacy. Stanford University offers this great distance learning program at the Spogli Institute for International Studies. It's not a master's. I'm not that fancy. It's a graduate certificate and it it's supposed to take you between a year and two years. It took me something like four and a half years just because I kept starting and stopping <laughs> in the great, middle of work. Though. But I loved it. So yeah, I, I had I had that as as my background. That's one of the reasons when I started working on the president's campaign that I had. I had some background to work on the arts policy committee, which was working on things like cultural diplomacy and arts education. But when, sorry, I got sidetracked by my own- uh, No, and I sidetracked you by asking you about that other course, but I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I'm sure what you learned there, you were able to bring 
you know, more knowledge to the role. But I had asked about that decision to go full time in the office. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. With Obama, but also kind of the bigger zoom out impact. Yeah. So as the campaign was wrapping up, and this was maybe a year and what, three or four months after I had started. So the, Obama was the president elect against all these odds. And this email went out to anyone who had worked on the campaign that said, if you'd like to apply for a job at the White House or in the incoming administration, here's a form that you can fill out on a website called change.gov. So upload your resume. And if you're qualified and if we're interested, we'll reach out. And you know all these disclaimers, thank you so much for your work. There are far fewer jobs than there are individuals who've worked on the campaign and blah, blah, blah. And I hadn't considered whether I wanted to do something like that because I was perfectly happy being an actor and had worked my ass off to finally get a stable acting job, which I had on on the show House and was loving. Because of a writer's strike in Hollywood at the time, I was able to take more time on the campaign than I normally would have. But the strike had ended. I was We were all back to work happily. And I kind of thought, oh, I guess if it's just a website, right? Like I can just upload my resume and if I'm qualified, they'll call me. And if I'm not qualified, obviously they're not going to call me. But I guess that would be cool to know if I'm qualified or not to work at the White House because the only thing I knew was that if you had worked on a presidential campaign, there were a certain number of jobs that because you intimately knew all of the the decisions that went into certain campaign strategies that you would be able to best execute uh, you know after inauguration. Yeah. But I didn't tell anybody that I was doing this because again, I a I didn't I certainly didn't want the perception to be like, "Oh, Cal Penn thinks he can apply for a White House job because he's an actor." I don't exactly understand that thinking because the two have nothing to do with each other. But you'd also done the work on the campaign. I had done the work, but I, but I was still I was still uh, self-conscious about wanting yeah. to make sure that nobody else thought that I thought that because I didn't think that. And so the only person I told was my 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 manager, my acting manager who has represented me for now 20 years. I, I describe him this way in the book, in the audio book, and it's true. He is, as if you took every character from the HBO show Entourage and put them in one person, it would be him. Like just a super amazing, completely ridiculous human being who I love to death. But so I told him that I was, you know, I, I applied for this job on this website. And he's like, what happened? I was like, oh, no, nothing. You know, no, nobody called. He's like, well, that's good because you need to, you know, you're on a show. It's like, yeah, I know, I know. So a few months went by and the weekend of the incoming president's inauguration, a few of us who were those early surrogates, those early artists who had helped out on the campaign were invited to be part of the inaugural concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And one of the perks of that was you you could bring your family and like one or two other people backstage after the concert to meet the president-elect and the the new incoming first lady. So I brought my parents, brought my brother, and I brought my manager, Dan. And so we're standing back there after the concert and the president came around first and he was he was very nice. Then Mrs. Obama came through and she said, you know, thanks so much for everything you've done. I hope you stay involved the next four years. And I assume that's just something that you say to everybody because <laughs> that's what you say, you know, that's your hopey changing stuff. So I said, oh, definitely, definitely intend to. Thank you so much. And Dan, my manager, who was standing next to me, says, well, you know he applied for a job, right? And I was like, oh, no, man, don't, 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 don't not start now. this conversation. This is not the time and place to do that. And Mrs. Obama says, what are you talking about? And Dan said something like, yeah, well, you're, you're saying he should stay involved. I'm just letting you know, like, he applied for a job at the White House and nobody even called him back. And I was mortified, right? And I was like, oh, dude, please don't do this right now. This is horrible. So Mrs. Obama looks at me and she goes, I didn't know that. Who did you apply with? And then I blurted out, oh, I just, I put my resume on change.gov, like the email said. With like 50,000 other people. Exactly. So she gave me this look of like, like, you you know, Mrs. Obama, especially of the two of them, but both both of them really, but she has a visibly low threshold for bullshit, right? Like you can just see it in her face. And so she gave me this look that I, I think I describe as like, like as if you dropped a piece of pizza on the ground, like cheese side down, and then like still picked it up and ate it in front of her. It's like a what the fuck kind of a look. So it was that was the look that I was given. And then she goes, uh, hey, Barack, come here. And the president-elect was like, oh, I already said hi to Cal and his family. And she goes, no, 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 come back here. So then 
the president-elect comes over and she looks at me and says, tell him, tell him what you just told me. And I was like, no, 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 we're good. We're good. It's really, congratulations to both of you. Really nice to see you. And he goes, what is it? And so I said, well, I, I was just telling your wife, you know, I, I, uh, I had applied, I applied for a job at the white house. So if I can be helpful, I'd be happy to consider it. And, and he goes, oh, who'd you apply with? And so then again, I had to say, I, I put my resume on change.gov and he, he was a little more amused by this. And I think said something like, you know, why didn't you call? Why didn't you reach out to anybody? Uh, and then he called his personal aide over Reggie Love, who then put me in touch with Chris Liu, who was the incoming cabinet secretary, also in charge of part of the hiring during the transition team. The reason I stopped the story there is I just want to point out, right? Obviously, it's this is self-deprecating by design, but it's exactly what happened. And it's no different than any other company. So the reason I'm pausing here is like, yes, it's funny because this is the incoming leader of the free world, essentially. But you think about it this way. If you had worked for a small startup company for a year, a year and a half, and that company grew incredibly well and achieved everything it wanted to achieve and was bought out by another company, but your boss was still the CEO – and you wanted to continue to work for that company because you were proud of what you've all accomplished together and you were humbled by the opportunity, you wouldn't just upload your stupid resume. You would also call a few people and be like, hey, I am so passionate about this. I would love to continue. If you don't do that, then the impression that they have, which is what was indicated by these looks, is, is this guy serious? Does he actually care? Because to us, it sounds like he not only doesn't care, but isn't proud of the work that he's done. Because if he mm. was proud, then he would have called to say, I'm so excited. I'd like to continue helping out. So that was a big life lesson for me. It's not something yeah. that you experience that much in an in industry like entertainment because of how hiring works and how sort of competitive that field is. But in something that's a bit more traditional, I was floored. I was like, I can't believe I'm so stupid that I didn't even think about this. And it, it's like, also the why didn't you go rogue, Cal? You could have gone rogue then again. I mean, I guess, I guess my so manager went rogue, like, right? Yeah. Who knows? It maybe felt so important, but in a different way, isn't it? Like yeah. there's so much integrity to that office. Not that you don't have integrity, Kat, so much, <laughs> so much. But I, but I understand yeah. that sometimes we hold back. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why it was just a, a wild thing. It's a good question. I, I guess the it's also just feeling like I, I, I loved my job that I was on. I, I was on a great TV show and I had no qualms about it. I had no beef. I mean, the part that was probably going rogue there was how I left the show house. So it was less about getting the job, working in the incoming administration. So after that whole conversation and I when I got a formal job offer, I had to obviously talk to the people on the show house. And so I had called my agent, different from my manager. I'd called the agent at the time and said, I have this job offer and I'm wondering if you could talk to them about getting me off the show. And there's a whole process, right? There's so many lawyers involved in studios and production companies. And I thought, let me do this the right way. Let me make sure my agent can handle part of it. And she called back pretty quickly and said, they said, no, they, they refused to let you off the show. I said, oh, all right. Well, what could you please try again? So she tried again and the answer was still no. So then I thought, well, I mean, before telling the president of the United States that I can't work for him because I'm too busy playing a fake doctor, I should probably just ask people myself. So I made an appointment with David Shore, who created House, and I went into his office and I said, hey, man, I know that my agent's probably already reached out at least two times, but you know, I've got this incredible job offer at the White House, and I just think it's such a life-changing opportunity to serve our country at a very particular time that I just don't feel like I should say no to it. But obviously, I can't do it if I'm still on the show. And he, David said, oh, you got a job at the White House? Congratulations. This is the first I'm hearing of this. And so then I was like, oh, of course, because agents and people make a commission off of your salary. So, and to this day, to be fair, I don't know if the agent never asked or if the agent just asked at the network level. And so mm. David never knew because if the network knows and they don't want you off the show, they're never going to share it with the producers or the show creator. So he said, well, are you sure this is what you want to do? I mean, are you unhappy on the show? And I was like, no, I'm very happy on the show. This is crazy that I'm even considering it. And he goes, okay. So, so if that's what you really want, I, I, I'm happy to help you with that. Had I not gone rogue that way, had I just taken the agent's face value response, and I certainly also wouldn't have had the chance to go serve in the White House. 
I feel like there's a thread through your life and who you are and through the book of for you going rogue is showing who you really are mm. and trying to be the best version of yourself or show someone else the best version of yourself, whether that's in an audition setting or not. So it's kind of a drive to be like, this is who I am. This is what I want to do right now. Just being honest, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's just that lesson of like if you go to people and say, hey, this is what's really going on, Yeah. it's often quite hard for people not to meet you there. I mean, the Sabrina director did not, <laughs> right? And yeah, then you're like, yeah. true asshole, goodbye. But do you feel like in your life more and more just coming back to that place you know, ends up, it serves you well. I wouldn't even go that far. I would say that in my life, I've probably noticed that, look, if, if there's something that I want to do, then the question of will I, even if it's a decision point, right? Like the the question I think we all ask, ask ourselves, do I just like the idea of this or is it something I actually want to work at, right? Plenty of us love the idea of something, but we're not prepared to put in the work for it. So therefore it's it remains a thing that like, like I'm a fan of astronomy. I'm terrible at math. I'm not willing to put in the work for it. So I subscribed all the like weird astro blogs, but there's no reality in which I'm going to grad school for physics. That's something I've decided for myself. I probably could if I wanted to put in the work, but I'm not going to put in the work. So, so the things that I think that I've asked myself that question about is like, will I, will I regret doing this? No, I'll probably I'll probably regret not pursuing it, or I will always wonder what if I had pursued it. Doesn't mean that I'm going to go down that path. I just want to see if I can do it or not do it. And so, I think in having these kinds of go rogue conversations, there are plenty of times where it's not the response that you want. I think I, I feel like the Sabrina example is perhaps egregious in our conversation because a it was 20 years ago, and b it was about something like racism rather than a tangible series of goals that could lead to mm -hmm. something. But I think it's even if it's things that I haven't had the chance to do that I really wanted to do, at least doing everything that I could do, everything that was in my control to do it, helps soften the reality that it may not happen. Because then at least I know that I've done everything I can do. To me, I, I get very frustrated when I don't have control over something or when I haven't fully tried every avenue to get what I what I want. And so having tried all of the things, then I'm like, okay, I can now process the fact that this is not something that's going to happen or that I might have to work another five years before this thing that I really want is going to happen. But but at least you know going forward and doing it, it's, it's that line between like, I don't know if there's a word for this. There probably is. I'm sure many of your listeners will just tweet it at me. But the difference between imposter syndrome and then the arrogance of feeling like you're owed something, like, you know, I've worked at this company for six months. How come I'm not a vice president yet? Like, because you've only worked here for six months. So those two things are totally different, but sometimes they meet in the middle. And I've found that at least trying everything that I can do will make it make sense for me. Well, that's such a beautiful answer. And I feel like I'm seeing in your book, the thing I'm struggling with and need help with, you know, every reader brings their lens to a film or a, a book or an artwork. I know we only have three minutes left. So I have to tell everyone who's listening, there are so many parts of the book we didn't talk about, obviously, like infinitely yeah. amount, but we captured what we did, which was beautiful. But I want to ask, uh, yeah. the way I end every show is, what lights you up? So, okay, what lights me up is spending time with people who are passionate about whatever it is they're passionate about. It may not be my passion, but having a little piece of what somebody else loves is something that I enjoy, especially when it's people who don't view the world as made up of mutually exclusive choices, right? And so one of the reasons that I wrote this book was I feel incredibly blessed that I've had these crazy, insane careers, you know, playing a stoner and working for a president. And I know that there are plenty of people who also don't view the world as being made up of singular choices. We all have different passions, different things that we want to do. Sometimes we juggle multiple careers. Everyone knows the pandemic made many of us reassess, am I living in the place that I want to live? Is my life in the place I want it to be? Is my relationship where I want it to be? All of those things are sort of tied up in 
you know, the MILF joke version of a lot of those stories. But the subtext of that is like what lights me up is having had the opportunity to do a lot of those things. And I wish there, you know, this is not a heavy handed memoir. It's it's designed so that you can listen to it on the drive to work or or read it at the beach. But I hope it's made up of stories that I never had the chance to read when I was 25 or, or 30 even, because those are the things that light me up is the the chance to spend so much time with people who I love. And that's why there are so many stories about them in the book. To that answer, I feel it gives us all courage to maybe go rogue in our own way. But gosh, yeah, I wish I'd had your book when I was 20 to go go out there, like be more bold in those years, especially yeah. that decade of your 20s is such, we have so much freedom then that we don't maybe yeah. know, you know, at the time. But I just want to end with something because I thought it was so beautiful on your a lot of your school reports, they would say, <laughs> very conscientious, but he daydreams a lot. A lot, and yeah. Do you think that still describes you? Definitely. Yes. You know, the kid part of it is just, you, you might as well say very easily distracted, but then you realize that that, that's, that sentence is also just a very, a very 1980s era way of describing somebody who's creative. So I've learned to really love that part. And I'm like, Hey, the people who I gravitate towards are the people who think outside the box and who don't view things through a specific lens. But I will also say the, the the counter to that is I am phenomenally envious of people who can sit still for eight hours at a desk. I wish I could do that. It's a skill. And it, this is not to say that those people are not creative because many of them are. And they talk about uh, things not being mutually exclusive. I mean, I do love looking back at the what the guidance counselors and report cards said and being like, oh, I guess I guess some things don't really change as evidenced by replying to the National Security Council with a MILF joke. Like, that is that is clearly a daydreamer's response. A rational human would be like, hey, buddy, you work at the White House, and the National Security Council just emailed you. Maybe, you know, remember you have a suit and tie on and email them back properly. Cal, what a pleasure. Thank you so much Likewise. for coming on Lit Up and your beautiful book. Thank you, Angela. I appreciate it. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. This week's episode was edited by Rebecca Seidel. Olivia Olmer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Rodofsky wrote the amazing theme music. See you in two weeks. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.